So I've started recording now. I'll start a few seconds. Good day, everybody. Welcome to Med Conversations. This is Davor here, and it's a bit of a different episode of Med Convos today. Rather than having our usual crew of, of Rahul, Beck, and Scott, I've got my friend uh, Dean Witty here today. Hi, Dean. Say hi. Hey, Davor. Good to be here. So Dean is a psychiatry registrar, senior psychiatry registrar at the Royal Melbourne. And we're going to have a chat about depression today, in particular, the overview of depression. The thinking of, of this episode and something that we're hoping to do a little bit more in the future as well, is we've realized that we've become extremely unqualified to talk about lots of things in medicine as we've continued to specialize and subspecialize. But on the other hand, we, we've kind of now I've got this rich resource of friends who've done other specialties who can, you know, answer all, all the questions that we've always had about some of the, the interesting topics out there. So we'll be talking about depression today. It's hopefully going to be one of three episodes. The first one uh, today is going to be kind of just a generalized overview of depression. So to, to begin with, we'll be talking about a definition of depression and then moving on to uh, the burden of depression. And then finally, we'll talk about the different models of, uh, of how we understand the pathophysiology of depression and also how those kind of models are in tension with each other and how we, how we understand uh, their interactions. So a really, really fascinating topic, something that I'm personally really interested in and something that everyone is going to see a lot of in their careers. And we all need to recognize it and uh, you know, possibly treat it even if you're not a psychiatrist and uh, at least know when to refer onwards. So thank you so much, Dean, for your time today. Very much appreciated. All right. So as we said, the first thing we're going to be talking about is what is depression? And, and it's a word that is being confusing to me uh, for much of my kind of pre-medical career and even in my medical careers because it's used in so many different contexts. And as far as I can understand, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dean, but you know, the, the word is used interchangeably, sometimes just to describe a mood state. Sometimes it describes a syndrome. And then other times the word is, is used to, to describe a distinct medical uh, or a distinct psychiatric disorder. So yeah. I guess to begin with, Dean, when we're talking about depression as a mood, what, what does that mean exactly? Mm. Yeah, so I think it's it's good to take a step back and kind of yeah, yeah. you're 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 right in being confused about that because the the same word is used to to refer to pretty different things that are similar um, that have a lot of crossover, but it is good to be clear of what we're talking about in each context. I mean, depression has has a meaning outside of medicine, which is very real, and so when somebody talks to you about being depressed, it's it's good to try and clarify that. So I guess coming to that question of referring to depression as a mood. So, I mean, in thinking about mood, we can get complicated or we can keep, we can keep, keep it simple. And I, I think that's what we should be doing Let's here. Keep it thinking, simple. Think, <laughs> thinking, thinking about mood in the way anyone would think of, of mood. So it's, it's an effective state. It's an, it's an emotional state. It's a, it's a, it's a state of being. Um, yeah. And so uh, when we think about depression as a mood, then it's, you know, it's 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 a reduction in that when we say it's a it's a low mood or it's sadness or any kind of number of synonym that you can you know get the your thesaurus can cough out for that so you know despondency sad, uh, despair hopelessness feeling blue yeah, yeah um and that's 
that's something. And, and, and people who are depressed, they won't, sometimes they might not even describe it as sadness. They might describe it as something quite different. Yeah. yeah. We talk about depression as a syndrome. Um, so the syndrome is that tends to be the space that a lot of psychiatry operate within where it's a, it's a constellation of symptoms and signs that, that tend to run together. Um, and it's, it's good to kind of remember uh, the difference between diseases and syndromes as, as well. And so we're talking about syndromes here. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, as a syndrome, um, it's tends to, we tend to think about these nine, there's a wide number of symptoms that are associated, but we, we think about these nine broad symptoms, um, which uh, when we're thinking about major depressive disorder, that's what we're talking about. And, and I think in, in med school and, and kind of even, even afterwards, to be honest, like you just got to, you just got to learn them. You just got to learn your nine symptoms, work, work on a, um, a mnemonic. I had a dumb mnemonic that doesn't really make any sense. And it sounds a bit silly saying it out loud. Right, but go I, for it. They're, they're the most memorable <laughs> ones. Yeah. Uh, the more memorable. Go uh, for uh, it. Uh, yeah. Right. So it's a, uh, so I, I picture a, uh, so go with the word mice, mice see gas. So we think about a depressed maestro who's driving a, a car, preferably a Corvette because it starts with the C as well. <laughs> really, he's really got his, his foot on the gas. Gotcha, so, yeah. we, so we go through that really quickly. So, so low, low mood, anhedonia, um, troubles with eating, troubles with sleeping, tiredness, concentration, uh, guilty or hopeless ruminations, uh, psychomotor agitation or slowing and uh and suicide suicidal thoughts right now a, a smarter cleverer way to divide those up is into the the kind of broad clusters of um emotions uh neurocognitive or cognitive kind of thinking clusters and neurovegetative or kind of the body so if we go through each of those and then that and a cl- kind of clustering nine into three 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 of three is, is probably an easy way to think about it. Yeah, so, exactly. That's how my brain works. I can't remember anything. Yeah. It's more than, more than three. So three yeah. of three I can kind of handle. So kind of what, what are the three emotional aspects of uh, the depression syndrome? Mm, yeah. So these, these are the, these are the big ones. So depressed mood and anhedonia. So for a diagnosis, so, so depressed mood meaning, um, exactly kind of what we were saying before, but in, if we're talking about a disorder, um, it, it needs to be there for a certain period of time. So major depressive disorder, it's kind of more than two weeks um, for most of the time. Anhedonia uh, is a lack of interest or joy in activities that would, or, or pleasure in things that would usually be enjoyable or pleasurable. Mm. Um, and then feelings of worthlessness or excessive guilt. And now, those, for, those first two, the depressed mm, mood and then anhedonia, you were saying that you need, are they necessary to make the diagnosis of, yeah, of depression? One, yeah, one of, one of the two. Yeah, uh, you for, need to for, have. for major depressive, you need to have one of the two. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they're, they're, yeah, they're more weighted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the neurocognitive or kind of the, the thinking um, symptoms, are, um, if, we're, and again, if we're just talking DSM, so it's um, so concentration. Um, so at, at deficits in concentration is, is a symptom, but you can also think about other things like attention and executive uh, dysfunction coming under this banner as well. Yeah. There's, there's also psychomotor uh, agitation or psychomotor slowing. And the reason this is 
I've been the, the thinking rather than the body is it's it really is the when people talk about it they talk about the, the thinking slowing down or when they're feeling agitated they feel like that's it's 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 very much a thought process as much as it is what we see in the body yeah yeah um and then um and then thoughts of suicide so this is this is a, a part where we're doing a bit of uh putting this in the, the neurocognitive bucket we've got to kind of twist the category around a little bit to fit it in but mm-hmm. um but yeah thought, thoughts of suicide which isn't so much of a symptom as a uh, as a uh, yeah it's it's i mean it's classified as a symptom but it's it's in its kind of own category yeah yeah um, and then there's the neurovegetative or kind of body or activity symptoms and so this um this is sleep so typically in depression it's a deficit in sleep so insomnia um but you can also get excessive sleep so hypersomnia as well yeah so it just um, changes one way or another yeah yeah um and then appetite uh so similarly to sleep we tend to see anorexia so lack of appetite um but you can also see you know, excessive um, um excessive eating or binging and the way we think about this in a more objective way um, other than having somebody explain their experience is um, a change in body weight of uh, 5% over a month. We, we tend to think that that kind of ticks that box. Right. Okay. Um, and then, and then fatigue. Fatigue as well. Uh, yeah. Which is, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So just to, just, you said a lot of really great stuff in that. So I might just summarize it beautifully. Uh, oh, sorry. You said it beautifully. I'll summarize it competently just to, <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify that. Uh, yeah. So the way you, you gave that great mnemonic of mice gas, which you've got a, a an image of a, a maestro driving yeah, so, a Corvette and having his foot so on the gas. Yeah, so maest, so M-M-A-E-S-T. It's what, okay, uh, all right. Can you just run through what that stands for one more time? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so mood, yeah. uh, so low mood, um, anhedonia, uh, so, uh, eating issues, so yeah. uh, sleeping deficits or sleeping differences um tiredness so fatigue uh and c concentration g guilt or hopelessness uh, a for psychomotor agitation mm-hmm. or psychomotor slowing or retardation uh, and suicide yeah okay great and the other way of thinking about this depression syndrome is dividing the symptoms or the clinical manifestations into three categories, so emotional, neurocognitive, and neurovegetative. And under the emotional, we had the necessary, you need one of these two uh, symptoms of depressed mood or anhedonia, and also feelings of worthlessness or excessive guilt. So that's the emotional part of the depression syndrome. And then the neurocognitive part of the depression syndrome, so that's uh, attention and concentration slash um, executive dysfunction uh, and also psychomotor agitation or retardation and then thoughts of suicide so three in that category as well and then the final category was the neurovegetative so kind of the more body clinical manifestations so in that category we've got sleep disturbance which can be either too much or too little sleep compared to what they were getting before uh, changes in appetite or weight and then uh, the last one was fatigue so that's a really good summary. So the, the next question I had for you about this depression syndrome is we hear this term of major depression and then I never hear minor depression, but I assume it exists. Mm. Is there, you know, 
how does that fit in with the with the syndrome? Is there a certain number of things you need to get to qualify as having major depression and kind of less than that you've got minor depression? Is that right? Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the presence of major kind of suggests the presence of minor. And yeah. in, 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 in a way it's true, but I think it's, I don't, I don't know how clinically useful it is. I and mean, it's, a, the, there is minor depression um, uh, has, has been, uh, has kind of been put in a category at the back of the DSM and it isn't in the most recent edition. Right. Okay. Um, but, it, but, it, but in the past, it was thought about as, depression that um, had two to four of those symptoms rather than five. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I, I, I think there's, it's probably best to just not even think about major minor depressive depression as, as it's probably best to just keep it out, out of mind because uh, the, the risk of one, once you're getting into that space um, is pathologizing normal experience yeah okay um, yeah, yeah and it's it's and it's not in any of the current uh guidelines or any of the current uh manuals of of mood disorders so it's, yeah, it's best okay. to just know that, best to think about it to know that it's not there <laughs> yeah yeah Okay. All right. So just to, to repeat that one more time. So Dean, to make the diagnosis of major depression, which is the only one we really care about in medicine, uh, you know, what parts of that constellation of the depression syndrome do you need? So for the major depression, so you need, so you need five out of the previous nine symptoms, but, mm -hmm. um, but what, at least one of them needs to be depressed mood or anhedonia. Yep. And okay. you need those symptoms uh, present most of the time. Now most is doing some heavy lifting there, but it's one of those things that when you when you see it, you know it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So present most of the time for at least two weeks, but less than two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a there's an important time course element there as well, mm. as there often is in medicine. Okay. All right. Great. So that's we've covered depression as a mood, which is you know pretty similar overlap to how most people would understand depression. Depression as a syndrome, which is very much a, a distinct checklist of symptoms and a, a very kind of quantifiable way of diagnosing depression. And then the final way we hear depression discussed is as an actual disease. Um, so Dan, can you give some example of, of kind of diseases that might be used as a synonym or depression might be used as a mm. synonym for, for one of these diseases? Yeah. So the main one is, is what we've, we've already been talking about is a major depression or major depressive disorder. I think it's probably worth um, specifically referencing it as unipolar major depressive disorder. Yeah. Um, because uh, I guess in a similar way to, to saying major depression suggests the presence of minor depression, this, this is a time where it is very important where unipolar suggests the presence of bipolar and mm. it should, that should always, the bipolar disorder or the, the, the question should always be there when you see somebody with depression, whether this is a disease or a syndrome that we're seeing where somebody, when they're unwell, it just has periods of depression versus yeah. a bipolar disorder where they have periods of de both depression and periods of kind of the opposite where the mood is abnormally elevated, which can be the which you know can be the point of being manic or the point of being hypomanic but um mm -hmm. that that's a bit beyond what we're talking about today but it's just it's really important to to think about 
the possibility of bipolar um, disorder when we see um, major depressive disorder. Anyway. Right. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's a good point. And for that, for that reason, just kind of making the point of saying unipolar major depression is important. Mm. But yeah, mm. so yeah. that's that's one one example of kind of the depression mm. syndrome, mm. you know, being part of a disease. Are, are there any other examples? Bipolar yeah, being yeah. the other one, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So bipolar. There's um another disorder called a uh, persistent depressive disorder, mm. which previously was called dysthymia. And I mean, with a lot of these. Uh, syndromes and diseases the names change over time but they're they tend the older versions of names tend to be sticky so you can you'll see you'll see names of diseases used even if they're a bit outdated and this is one so you i probably see dysthymia described more than persistent depressive disorder yeah and so too. that's that's uh basically uh a, a, it could be thought of as a, as a chronic depression which doesn't need to fulfill as many of the criteria. The, the criteria are subtly different, but it's probably best to think about it as depression that exists for more than two years. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, we won't, I'm sure the DSM has some nitty gritty uh, mm. kind of checklists that are slightly different, but mm. I think that's it's, a good, good summary. It's just yeah, depression yeah. or depressed mood that kind of lasts more than two years. Mm. Yeah. Then there's um, depression or depressive disorder that's due to a substance or due to a medical illness. And they're, mm. they're important to think about as well. So the, the main substances we think about are alcohol, uh, mm -hmm. methamphetamines, um, when we're you know, dealing with the addiction space. And then um, in terms of prescribed medications, steroids and beta blockers are often implicated in, in depression. Yeah, yeah, for then, sure. And then um, depression due to a medical illness. Um, I mean, there's pretty much any any medical disorder can lead to depression, um, but uh, the the ones that are probably overrepresented um, probably actually tend to be more uh, the neurological conditions. So so in uh, in stroke, uh, Huntington's, Parkinson's, uh, depression is 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 quite common. Yeah, um, I, feel, I feel like almost the majority of our patients, mm, yeah, depression yeah. is a really major part of, of their their medical issues. Migraine's mm. another one where they just seem mm. to be so closely interlinked. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's the other kind of classic ones are the heart failure, hypothyroidism, um, deficiencies like B12 and folate uh, and, and Addison's. Yeah, okay. Kind of the classic ones we think about, but, but yeah, pretty much anything can. And it's important to think about because uh, it's the treatment of that underlying medical disorder that will treat the depression. Mm, yeah, yeah. Or sometimes um, then, <laughs> in neurology, migraine being another example. Sometimes yeah, it's, yeah. Sometimes it's the other it, way around it, as well. Both, you need, you yeah. need to treat both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, um, and yeah. then so, some of the other ones we think about, which um, so uh, another disorder you'll probably get seen get thrown around is adjustment disorder with uh, depressed mood. Yeah, so that's. Yeah kind of depression that's doesn't it doesn't need the same amount of criteria but again think about just the same kind of criteria but this has happened after an event after some kind of thing in someone's life that they're adjusting to and there's a time cost to that as well but it's probably not as important to think about um mm -hmm. and but it's very common and then there's a there's a couple of new di diagnoses in the dsm which i think it's probably worth briefly mentioning just so we kind of know what they are mm. uh, so the first one is premenstrual dysphoric disorder mm -hmm. and so that's that's essentially 
depression that occurs around the time of Menzies. And again, the, the criteria are a little bit, the symptoms are a little bit different, but they, they come from the same kind of pool. And so in, in, um, for this uh, to be diagnosed, it's um, so five, of more, five or more of symptoms uh, occurring a week before the Menzies and then uh, resolving a couple of days afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And then yep. there's this other kind of wackier diagnosis, which I think is almost worth forgetting as soon as I say it, um, <laughs> disruptive right. mood dysregulation disorder, um, which right. is in-, in D's. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's a pediatric diagnosis. Um, and it's, my, my understanding is it's, it's kind of an alternative diagnosis to give children when you don't want to diagnose them with bipolar disorder. Because right. there is, there has been this, um, issue with over diagnosis of bipolar disorder so and, right, and in right. kids there's all kinds of there's all kinds of reasons kids can be acting weird and this is <laughs> there's a there's a criteria for this um it's yeah, yeah um that's probably about as much as we need to know about it from <laughs> the perspective sure. right now okay all right so that was a lot again you know we were just this whole kind of last 10 minutes or so we've just been talking about what is depression and you know, you may not have picked up all of what we said, but the most important thing that absolutely everyone needs to know is that depression, as it's commonly referred to, is often a syndrome rather than a specific disease. And, and that there's nine uh, components of that syndrome, the maced sea gas, made famous by my <laughs> friend Dean Whitty. And we then we'll use that, <laughs> we use that syndrome uh, to then make a make a diag as a component of a diagnosis of of another disease um you know whether that's unipolar major depression which is kind of the, the most common one and often used as a synonym of depression or a whole host of others that that dean just went through there um and you can open up dsm uh, to, to have a look at those in detail i should we should probably jump in and actually say what dsm is because i think we've just been mm. throwing around the acronym uh, so yeah. D, D, yeah. dsm is the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders and we're now up to dsm5 which is the fifth uh, edition which correct me if i'm wrong dean that is a, a list of diagnoses that perfectly encapsulates the whole spectrum of human experience and everyone agrees that they mm. perfectly diagnose everyone yeah uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nailed yeah, if it. Yeah, <laughs> no, if you haven't found a, a diagnosis in there to describe someone's problem, you haven't looked hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, I, I think it's it's good to talk about because um, once you get into your psych rotations and stuff, you'll find that it generates lots of hostility. And I, I know when I was going through med school, I, I found it really hard to know to try and work out what I actually needed to learn because. A lot of psychiatrists would say, "Ah, oh, it's all it's all crap. Just don't even just forget about it." But mm. it's 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 what we're using. It's what we're stuck with at the moment. It's mm. it's I don't know. It's it's good in some ways. It's bad in other ways. It's just it's just the the, the dominant uh, in at least in this, in Australia and in the US, it's it's the dominant classification system that we have. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you more about this later, but, you know, we might as well just chat about it now. So, yeah, I suppose it's important to realise that it's there and it's it's important to maybe know what classification your, your patient falls under because that's really important for accessing treatment and, and for communicating, you know, the condition uh, to the patient and to other clinicians and for the patient to communicate it to other people. But 
I suppose it, it would be really important to understand the, you know, the potential problems with it. And I imagine, is that something you kind of communicate to your, your patients as well, that, you know, we can't perfectly encapsulate everything that's going mm. on in this, in this checklist that we've, we've got from this book? It's, it's certainly something that I communicate, that these are the diagnoses a lot of the times are, are tools for communicating uh, kind of complicated, potentially complicated things very uh, quickly and easily and giving uh, some direction. It's in, in this, but in, in the same ways, it uh, can be useful for communicating a clinician to patient. It's really important as a way of being able to communicate uh, clinician to clinician and kind of between, between professionals as well. Mm. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's a way of kind of organizing thinking as well. And it's, um, and, and quite important for trying to get some kind of shared understanding of what we're talking about. Um, it's, uh, and, uh, and that's obviously really important for, for research as well. And to be able to communicate what you're seeing in front of you and somebody, in another country in another context having some understanding of what what you're talking about yeah. you're using the same words to describe the same kind of thing yeah um and it's it's an imperfect system um it's an in but surprisingly <laughs> we, we could say despite we're despite drawing these um kind of arbitrary categories we do have treatments and interventions that work much of the time Mm. So, and I suppose that's built on that categorization, like mm, you know that yeah. re- that whole all that research and all that service delivery is you mm. know this is the foundation of all that. So it must work mm. to some extent. It must be somewhat mm. useful, and that's mm. the proof is in the pudding there somewhat. Mm. Yeah. This is a question that I'm just interested in. It, it, are there are there some psychiatrists that just don't use it at all? They're just like no. I think I can diagnose depression according to my clinical acumen, and that's just what we're going to go on. I'm, I'm sure there would be some in kind of um, the weird backwaters of private world. Um, I've, <laughs> I've exclusively worked in the in the public space, so yeah, okay. I think in Not order in to you know, in order to get through the door. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, but no, I, I I think I think everyone recognizes it as a um, as a as a necessary beast in the same way as we recognize all the other kind of uh, things that we increasingly doing in medicine with you know. okay cool all right so the other thing i kind of wanted to ask about the the definition of depression and you know how we use the term is is how it fits in with anxiety because so often mm. when you're in other parts of medicine and you just see a list of comorbidities you'll see depression slash anxiety so how, mm. how does kind of that syndrome that we were just talking about how does that fit in together with anxiety mm, yeah I mean, this is one of these times where we, we do see the the categories that we draw up um, are imperfect and yeah. the, the, the boundaries between them uh, aren't as clearly defined as you know, we maybe suggest that they are. And, and this depression, it's a very, very common diagnosis that you see, depression, anxiety, depression slash anxiety. And yeah, exactly. Um, That's what I see all I mean, the time. It's, it can be shorthand for this person had some kind of trouble at some point. <laughs> mm, okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were diagnosed with depression or anxiety, um, but it but it, it is pointing to a, a real thing that it can be kind of hard to differentiate at times. Um, and yeah. and in, in the same way as talking about depression as a mood, I mean, anxiety mm. is, a, is a symptom, which is a normal, can be a normal symptom in 
in much it's a normal part of human experience um, yeah. and then there's anxiety kind of uh, spectrum disorders as well so if we're talking about anxiety as a symptom it's very very common in depression so it's almost it's it's kind of two at least two-thirds of people with depression have clinically significant uh, symptoms of anxiety alongside that um, and then if we think about anxiety spectrum disorders like generalized anxiety disorder panic disorder ocd or ptsd mm -hmm. comorbidity is really common so it's it's very common to have yeah, major depressive disorder alongside another anxiety disorder right okay so and how that would shake out if we were using the dsm you know at least some of these patients that we see depression slash anxiety how mm. you would properly express express that using kind of the dsm language is the unipolar major depression mm. is one diagnosis plus mm. kind of general anxiety disorders yeah. is the next yeah. diagnosis okay. and, and it's it's yeah and, and in the dsm as well so um there, there is also um signifiers as well for, for major depressive disorder so you, you can say major depressive disorder with i think with anxious distress is right the, okay um and you, know, you can say major depressive disorder with um with mixed features or um, with psychotic features and, and that, that can be really useful um, because it's such a heterogeneous condition mm -hmm. gives a little bit more um, nuance uh, more of a, more nuance yeah mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah and yeah and, and often when people are developing oh, often the anxiety can actually kind of precede their symptoms of depression as well by as many as a couple of years interesting um, right so that's the usual pattern it's usually anxiety first and then and then depression after that um, I'd, I'd say there's no usual pattern. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's another thing that you'll you'll see when you um you you seeing seeing patients in the wild is that it's 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 pretty rare to see people who very com comfortably fit into these criteria in the absence of fitting into anything else. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, so the other thing we wanted to talk about was the burden of depression now that we've kind of talked about the diagnosis of depression. So in Australia, as we've said, it's super common, and I'm sure anyone who's working clinically has seen a lot of it. And the statistics are that in Australia, the 12-month prevalence is 5%, and the lifetime prevalence is 12%. Interestingly, that's pretty different to what's reported in the US. They actually have double the rates in, in both 12-month uh, and lifetime prevalence. And, you know, that might make you think that we're happier in, in Australia. But as I understand it, a lot, of, a lot of this kind of diagnosis of depression is just so dependent on local factors uh, in both kind of uh, the medical culture, but also kind of the general culture as well. And, and Dana, what I wanted to ask you about this question of burden of depression is it's often said kind of in the general media or just kind of general conversation that depression everyone's depressed depression is getting worse it's worse in in developed countries than developing countries and, and it's getting worse with time is that something that we can we can comment on at all or is it all just so confounded by how difficult it is to diagnose and and, and have consistent diagnosis across different culture uh, different contexts mm. yeah it's um it is it is difficult to uh, to comment on it um, for exactly the reasons that you've outlined. Um, mm -hmm. It's I mean we we can see the the increase of the apparent kind of increase of diagnosis of depression as, as actually being a good thing in some ways because um, probably a reason that depression uh, isn't diagnosed in times where it is 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 stigma and willingness to for people to 
to talk about to talk Absolutely, about it and yeah. a, a big a big shift in mental health um and kind of a big shift in the community at, at large has been greater acceptance of talking about mental health so it, it does make it hard to really comment about uh what the apparent shifting of um, prevalence means particularly as as diagnostic criteria shift and change over time um but yeah it, it does it does seem that at least at this point in time the apparent prevalence of depression differs between different countries and different cultures and and we we do know that it seems to present differently um with you know with different cultural expectations of um which which is interesting that that's a whole other broad category that's very interesting to, to think about but probably beyond what we can think about today yeah yeah okay that's interesting all right so the other thing i wanted to talk about the the burden of depression is kind of specific factors you know which patients are, are most at risk basically so the question of age is it is it is it more common in the young or old or is there kind of one of those diseases that has two two peaks mm. in its in its prevalence what's how, mm. how is it associated with age yeah yeah, exactly, exactly that. So it's um, it's more, more common in the young and the old. <laughs> so <laughs> there's um, so it's uh, the lifetime prevalence is higher in, in the young, um, so twenty three percent to fourteen percent. Um, the average age of onsets um, kind of the early adulthood. So well, depends if we want to call thirty early adulthood. I'm I'm thirty, so I'd I'll choose to use that definition. <laughs> um, and the peak prevalence is is between is in the twenties and thirties, and then there's there's a second peak that occurs in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, so it's it's yeah. kind of this the sort of young young adulthood and 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 old age. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. Okay. Uh, and the other thing is income. Is it is it more common amongst uh, people with kind of low income or high income people? Hmm. So. Uh, it seems in in the U.S. at least, um, it's more common in people with um, with less income. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the, those studies are kind of mixed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I, I imagine there would be so much confounding that as well mm. in terms of some of the psychosocial risk mm. factors that we might talk about a little bit later. Mm. This is an interesting one: marital status, mm. uh, protective yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> or or a risk factor. Yeah, so so being married or in a de facto relationship is um, is least associated with depression. Nice, nice. Um, it's That's uh, a really word. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, it's uh, uh, the, the highest rates to be in people who are widowed or divorced, um, and they're never married or kind of in uh, kind of in between. Radio. So, so marital status is a high, high risk, high reward mm. strategy. If, mm. if you want to maximize, <laughs> maximize yeah. your happiness. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You can, you can kind of play it safe and yeah, you know, yeah. go, for, <laughs> go for middle of the road or you can go for gold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gender, is it more common in men or women? So, so it's twice as common, uh, diagnosed uh, twice right, in, in women than men. Mm, okay, and I, I imagine that would be wrapped up in a lot of the same confounding stuff that we just talked about before. Mm. You know, men feel a lot of stigma about admitting uh, that they've got some kind of psychological problems as if that was some kind of sign mm. of weakness or whatever. Hopefully, it seems to me that we're making a lot of progress on those kind of issues, but I'm not surprised mm. uh, that, that men, the depression is diagnosed less in men. I don't think that necessarily would mean that men mm. are less depressed, though, unfortunately. They're just getting mm. less help. 
Hmm. And uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, general medical disorders. So I, I guess you know, a lot of people listening to this aren't in psychiatry and, and may not go into psychiatry, but you know, what proportion of, of patients with other medical problems have depression? Mm. Yeah, so it's super common. So about a quarter, you know, 25% yeah. of people with general medical disorders have depression. That's a pretty staggering statistic, I think, mm. and really yeah. kind of rams the point home that you, you need to be able to recognise this disease, mm. uh, one in four. And and I, I found for me on, you know, on those clinic days where maybe I've got a few less patients and I've got time to like really delve into social history, you know, on those days, the, the prevalence of depression seems a lot higher. Um, mm. And and the days where I'm just absolutely smashed and can only do, do the bare minimum, it's lower. And it, I think it's really mm. worth sometimes digging into in, into those questions. And you, you, you need to ask. People mm. aren't going to volunteer this stuff. Mm. All right, so that's burden of, of the disease. So the next kind of thing we were going to talk about was how we understand depression. What's the, what's the pathophysiology of this disease? And, and this is something I'm really fascinated in. So, so listeners, bear with me. I'm probably going to ask more questions than is relevant for any kind of practical application. But it's, <laughs> it's a really, really interesting question to me. So, so there'll the, be an inverse relationship with the, the increased number of questions you ask and the, the lower quality of the answers that I'll provide. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so, so I guess the, the, the first question I want to ask is, uh, and, you know, this is a bit facetious, do we have a good unified model of depression? You know, do we understand mm. this disease in, in its entirety? Mm, that's a good, that's a nice easy one. No. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Okay. All right. That's mm. not surprising to me. Uh, this, and this this one I am more kind of genuinely interested in what mm. your what your answer mm. is. Do you and and does the field in general feel like there's depression is kind of a broad umbrella of which there's kind of many different distinct distinct mechanisms maybe presenting similarly or even presenting differently, but that there's lots of different entirely different pathophysiologies operating under this umbrella of depression. That's kind of mm. that's kind of my intuition, but I have no idea if that if uh, if that's what psychiatry at large, and that's what if that's what Dean Whitty thinks. Mm. Yeah, um, so definitely, it's a it's a pretty mainstream view within psychiatry that there that depression is a wildly heterogeneous condition in terms of how it presents, but also in terms of what's contributed to the condition, the development of the condition. Um, the, the question about whether they're distinct entities, um, I think that's a bit harder to say. I, I think there's, there's a, a, I'd say probably the, the dominant thinking is that there's, a, there's a, lots of different pathways that, even pathways probably isn't the right term. There's lots of contributions to the development of depression and the relative contributions of, you know, differ in different people. You know, it's, mm. it's probably, we're probably not going to be able to point at one thing and say, that's what did it, which, I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, giving spoilers away for the next section. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah well, look, that's hard for, for, for me to accept as a, as a physician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe I'll put, I'll say yet. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. We, we don't know it yet. Yeah. It's interesting kind of that biopsychosocial model that we got taught in first year medicine just seems that it really, really applies to depression and is probably mm. the most nuanced and mature way of, of looking at it. Mm. So, so kind of expanding on that, the, there is a, we think there's a biological part of, mm. of, of depression. And, you know, if you, unless you believe in the soul, it's all going to be biological at the end of the day, I guess. Mm. 
Um, so I thought I thought we'd may, maybe talk through kind of some of these predominant biological models, and I'll, I'll try and keep this brief because, as I said, this is something that I'm personally really, really interested in. Um, so kind of the, the top one is the chemical imbalance model, and that's that's the one that you know most lay people would have heard of, mm. and and that in in medicine or in psychiatry is known as the monoamine hypothesis, I believe, and that's mm. basically not enough serotonin, not enough happy juice. Um, and, and therefore you're sad. So mm. kind of what's the, what's the evidence for this model? Why, how did we arrive at this point? Mm. Yeah, so this was this came up in the 50s um, and there was a, a few things that contributed to it, but the, the two main things were um, the antihypertensive medication Reserpin, um, which I can't remember the mechanism of action. Um, I said, I can't remember, probably knew, never knew it in the first place. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, part of its mechanism of action is to reduce these, these um, monoamine. Um, and it was hypothesized that that well, was found to trigger depression. Um, so the right. thinking was that uh, if you reduce monoamines and that causes depression, then re reduction in monoamines may that may be what depression is. And, and just um, if, and, in, in case you haven't been following, the monoamines is the serotonin, but also noradrenaline, noradrenaline dopamine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the the problem with that was that it was kind of flawed right from the start because um, the reserpin actually was kind of used as a as an early treatment for depression with some success. Right. <laughs> right okay. So, <laughs> Um, so it was, and, and, and people have looked back at those studies and thought that, and, and brought it into, into doubt as well. Right. So okay. but anyway, right. that's, that's part of, part of the story. The, the other, um, the other thing was, um, the anti, uh, TB medication, um, uh, Iprinizad, uh, is, which is the monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So, which, uh, it's a Maui. increases these, the Maui, yeah. yeah um, yeah. uh, so when this medication was given to people with TB and, you know, a quarter of those people with TB having their depression, um, it was found that uh, that was helping treat some people's depression. So these, mm. these two kind of combined to, um, and then this led to the development of pretty much well, the vast majority of our antidepressants that we use today kind of come from that basic assumption and I mean, this, the straw man argument is that it's, it's low, um, you know, these chemicals are, are low and we need to increase them. The, the more nuanced explanations, obviously more nuanced than that is, <laughs> is dysregulation, but, yeah, yeah. but it's, um, and, and then the other thing is that in, there's been some suggestion that uh, uh, people who have depression have, you know, reduced absolute uh, numbers, uh, quantities or, whatever you want to call of, of monoamines. Uh, right, okay. In, and so yeah. they're kind of predisposed. Yeah. All right, okay. Yeah, that, I think that that story of, you know, they just happened to find that these patients with TB drugs were happier, that gives me, gives me more faith that there's, you know, some truth behind this model that we kind of just stumbled across it and then, and then mm. try to ex explain it retrospectively. Mm. And um, obviously, this model is not perfect because you know depression is not a cured disease by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Uh, kind of, what are what are the main arguments against this model or flaws with it? Mm. So, I mean, uh, one of the flaws is kind of reserpin being a antidepressant and not really knowing why that yeah, might be the said, case. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the the main problems really are that the antidepressants um, 
actually like increase the um, monoamine quantity or amounts pretty quickly, like in in matter of kind of minutes and hours, mm. but they don't have their antidepressant effect for weeks or months. Yeah. And so that doesn't really that's that's a problem. That's a problem with the theory, and it's a yeah yeah. There's been yeah, there's there's certainly convoluted explanations why that why that might be the case, but it does bring the the simplicity of the theory into question. Absolutely. Okay. And the other right. the other thing is that antidepressants just don't work a lot of the time. Yeah. They, they, yeah, they work yeah. they work they work pretty well um, with the people they 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 help, but the people that they don't help they yeah they don't, and that that's yeah. hard to make sense of with this simple with this the simplicity of this theory yeah well, i guess that comes back to kind of the the idea we we're talking about before that you know there may be different mechanisms that are predominant in different patients you know mm. so maybe for some patients this is the predominant mechanism and that's why the antidepressants work so well but other others less so all right so that's kind of the mainstream biological model um there's some mm. other ones as well that we'll go through briefly but this is very much in the weeds this is kind of just our mm. special interest section. Uh, you mm. don't need to know this for any kind of clinical application listeners. Mm. Uh, so the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis changes. So this is this is the you know stress causes depression theory mm. that uh, you know a lot of a lot of my patients certainly believe in, and anecdotally I think makes some kind of sense. Um, mm. What are what are kind of the, some brief points about that model? Mm. Yeah, so we could think about that as kind of the neuroendocrine model of. Mm. Um, yeah, stress causing depression by, uh, and this is a time where I could start throwing in words like cytokines and yeah, um, growth yeah. factors and brain derived uh, <laughs> neurotropic factors and expose my ignorance. But um, but yeah, the, the thinking is that um, there's a, a dysfunction of the H- HBA axis, um, and this you know we have a higher cortisol um, when uh, in times of stress, and then that sends the whole system into um, uh into kind of, bit of a feedback loop spirals. yeah yeah so and, yeah and as i understand it, we, to it but it just hasn't really been translated it just hasn't really been translated well to yeah um, yeah to interventions yet yeah, but it's yeah. it's there's almost certainly it's almost certainly very uh central to depression it's um it's 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 something that does link make make a bit of a link between the biological and the psychological in a way that mm-hmm. the monoamine hypothesis doesn't yeah um, okay that's interesting all right um the next model i wanted to briefly mention was the inflammatory model mm. um, and this is where we can say cytokines again next somehow mm. can trigger depression in some cases i think and, and people with autoimmune diseases are, are more likely to have depression Mm. Uh, so you know why aren't we just immune suppressing everyone with depression mm. yeah and uh, it kind of sounds it sounds like that might that might work as well you'd lead like that with the a theory kind of that elegant it's like we just need to give people NSAIDs and they'll be they'll be just fine yeah. but, but it, we it wish, doesn't, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the simple answer is that 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 it doesn't seem to work um, yeah yeah and again, w- yes, this is probably an interest. A few of these are, are very interesting areas. I think the mm. monoamine hypothesis is has been a bit dead in the water for, for decades. The rest of these things we're talking about, or well, most of these things we're talking about, are, are, are productive spaces where we're finding out more and more. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction to make. What I will say about this inflammatory model is uh, in MS, when uh, 
we obviously MS is associated with multiple sclerosis, I should say, is associated with a lot of, you know, hard neurological deficits like weakness, etc. And, you know, that's what a lot of our anti-inflammatory or sorry, immune suppressing treatments are directed towards. But we do notice when we put people on this, this really powerful stuff, often their kind of mood and mood and fatigue like drastically improves, uh, which, you know, really mm. makes me think anecdotally that, mm. you know, for this group of patients, you know, maybe their, their low mood is somewhat driven by just cytokines. Mm. Uh, all right. The other one, neuroplasticity. Um, so that's kind of the idea that we can rewire our brains and the theory, the idea behind this theory is that different people have different levels of neuroplasticity and that if you have less neuroplasticity, there's more depression. And there's this thing called brain-derived neurotrophic factor that's decreased in people with depression. There's evidence for that. Uh, any, any thoughts on that model? Is it, is, it, is it in that space of being kind of promising but hasn't mm. delivered any treatments yet, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. It's... um. Yeah, it's it's kind of a broader. It's an umbrella theory that that brings a lot of other <laughs> theories in. Yeah, um, exactly. As, exactly as right. kind of the, these last three actually are pretty in, interconnected in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, so the next one is structural and functional changes. But yeah, I agree agree with you that you know neuroplasticity is part of that. Uh, we we know that our different parts of our brain kind of increase and decrease in size as they get used or used or or not used and it's you know it's not surprising to me that as our neuroimaging has improved we've noticed that people with depression who have like a profoundly different psychological experience to someone without depression that their, their brains look different mm. and uh, and particularly when you start looking at the networks that are involved like their brain networks uh you can the default mode network um seems to be particularly particularly uh in overdrive and we've really gone into the weeds here so i'm sorry about this mm. you know, poor sec <laughs> second year medical student who's listening to this but it's really interesting um default <laughs> default mode network that's kind of the part of your brain that like thinks about yourself a lot and, and lots of self-referential thoughts and you know that's why uh people with depression like tend to ruminate a lot and that kind of thing and, and you can you can see that on on network imaging basically and the final one, and then we'll get out of the weeds, uh, mm. is is genetics. And it seems to be a major role, as it is in almost all medicine and human mm. experience in, in general. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's a moderately heritable disorder, right? Mm. And uh, first-degree relatives have three times the risk of depression com compared to others. Mm. All right, so that's the biological stuff. Monoamine is kind of the predominant paradigm, but as you said, it, it's it's less popular on the research front now, and we're we're looking at kind of a more complicated, sophisticated, and uh, and uh, universal models in the biological space. Then you've got the kind of psychosocial part of understanding depression. Mm. Um, so do you want to just kind of talk to kind of what are the main tenets of that model or kind of what are mm. the main psychosocial risk factors and how do we think that all works yeah yeah sure so um, i think an, an easy or a nice way to think about um risks uh and kind of pathways to depression and and to other psychiatric illness as well is to is to think about stress and to think about the, the model of stress and um when you can kind of bring trauma into that as as well but so we can think of stress as being both uh, things that have happened now or things that have happened kind of in the past. The distal stress, which is like childhood adversity, 
childhood um, mistreatment. Um, there's this is a, a, the space where a lot of the research is is heading in the direction of. Um, you might Interesting, have, right? Might have heard the um the like the ACE study, the adverse childhood experiences. I think that's what the E is. Um, anyway, a big big study in the US. Um, that was uh, I can't remember the numbers, but it was enormous. And basically, it was a questionnaire that was um, uh, asking people about different kinds of mistreatment and um, traumatic experiences from from childhood and then uh, essentially cross-sectionally seeing where they were at now um, with their psychosocial functioning mm. and there was a there was kind of a, a very clear relationship with the uh, the greater the proportion of adverse childhood experiences the greater the chance of psychiatric or psychosocial dysfunction um, in the future, and it, it maxed out at four different categories, mm. um, but it's um, but it was is is it's quite clear, it's quite obvious that that's you know that distal stress it can really predispose people to um, psychiatric illness more generally, but particularly depression. Mm. Um, and then we think about proximal stress, so uh, so that's kind of things that have happened recently or are happening right now, um, so kind of stressful life events or. Um, kind of medical illness right now. Um, you know, the, the, we talked about uh, the difference in people who are married versus um, divorced or separated. Um, losing a spouse through um, through divorce or through um, through death is is kind of just about the highest um, uh, kind of stressful thing that can happen to somebody. Um, there's kind of studies that have tried to quantify the different bad things that can happen to a person. Mm. And that's that. That tends to be up at the top. Divorce actually a little bit higher, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine that. Like, I, yeah. Mm. You know, sometimes you put yourself in the in the boots of, of a patient or a friend or whoever is going through that. And like, oh my god, I can't mm. imagine much much else worse yeah, than that. Yeah, but um, yeah, and then there's um, then the other things outside of stress, are like social factors and social networks. Um, so when we're talking about that, we're thinking about um kind of combining both risk factors, but kind of resilience factors as well. So um, interconnectedness, meaning um, versus kind of uh, isolation and, and, uh, and kind of loneliness can, um, can be absolutely be factors uh, in, in suffering and in um, people who develop uh, psychiatric illness. Um, and then there's, there's, probably the closest that we can get to clear etiological models of depression come from the, the psychological world. Mm. Um, and so the psychological theories are probably the theories that are the most elegant, all encompassing. You can kind of say, this is a pathway that kind of makes sense. Right. Okay. In a similar way to the um, biological theories, they're kind of they're simple. They're, I mean, they're, they're elegant, not too enough. elegant too <laughs> elegant that's yeah. it so i so that's where kind of papa freud comes in oh yeah good <laughs> I. And, you know, I was hoping he would show his face at some point <laughs> of course he's got to come up um but uh yeah so i mean we this is this would really be getting lost in the weeds if we're getting into the, the you know the psychodynamic yeah. areas of depression i think they're really it's it's useful it's it's things that we think about in psychiatry but um 
But probably the, the most important uh, thing to just flag is the, the cognitive and the behavioral theories of, of depression. Mm-hmm. So, um, cause that's probably, that's most of the, uh, CBT as, as a treatment for depression is really common. It's like as, as common as kind of medications mm-hmm. really. Um, so it's good to have a running idea of what that is. And the, the, the core kind of tenet of the cognitive theory of depression is that somebody, uh, develops kind of uh, core or someone develops inaccurate or unhelpful core beliefs about themselves, mm-hmm. the world and the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there is kind of a, a theory of how you get there, but that's pretty much where the, the core part of the treatment is, is, is trying to disrupt that, what we call the, the cognitive triad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also some behavioral um, explanations kind of like learned helplessness is an important concept in, in depression mm-hmm. um, the idea of feeling like you don't have a locus of control mm-hmm. through circumstance and part of that is uh, biologically the, the biology sets the scene you know the temperament is the um the part of someone's personality that's um genetically or biologically set um, yeah. and how that interacts with the environment is um how you develop a personality yeah um that's so interesting yeah yeah so there's yeah this this is a part where i could get lost in the weeds so i think that's i'll keep talking dean but (laughs) maybe maybe we'll stop recording uh yeah that's really interesting so so i guess if you were to kind of unify it a bit a bit um you know you would say something like uh you know there's the biology sets the scene at first particularly with your like temperament and and mm. maybe factors like resilience and then mm. if you undergo some kind of stress in particular particularly this kind of distal stress you know that that may then change your your cognitive and behavioral stuff um so you might st- you know start thinking these kind of really unhelpful thoughts and then that will kind of express itself as everything does ultimately you know back in biology you know maybe your cortisol goes up your cytokines go up your uh, you know your default mode network becomes overactive and certain parts of your brain change uh, and you know maybe ultimately your serotonin goes down um, and, and then you know at the end of that you've got pretty severe depression you solved um, it i solved it there you go yeah you did it <laughs> figured it out um, I, i've got to say as you were talking i was like maybe I, well this fluffy stuff is making more sense now <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm pleased to hear it but um, uh, now what, what, you, what you're describing there is is probably the closest we have to a unified theory at the moment, and yeah, so that's yeah. and it's got a, it's got a name. It's called the stress diathesis model. The Darvor theory, yeah, gotcha. The got Darvor theory, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you edit that out. And <laughs> it's called so the what's Darvor what's theory. the actual name? <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, this stress diathesis model. So it's it's so diathesis. Oh, I can't even remember what the specific kind of definition of diathesis is, but I, I think about it as like. Um, the vulnerability that's so kind of like a, the stress you can think about it like a stress vulnerability model so you have right. your vulnerabilities um from genetics and from early life experience mm-hmm. um and resilient factors that are um uh, helping to uh you know, protect you against the stresses that come and then and then there's a stress that um you, you might kind of hear about people this is really commonly used in, in CBT. We think about like a, um, we describe someone, think about their experience like a bucket where um, 
there's the buckets kind of partly filled up with I mean, some kind of liquid or cement that's um, that you can't change, and that's kind of what you're born with. Um, and then there's uh, the life stresses that fill the bucket up with water or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then your resilience factors is like a tap that's um, kind of letting the letting the stress out. Mm -hmm. And so some people have lots and lots are uh, starting from a high baseline, some are from a, a low. But I think it's a pretty simple model that's clearly not correct. It's not a it's not a model for describing what's happening, but it's it can be a useful way of thinking about it in a, mm -hmm. in a simple in a simple way. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully explained, Dean. Thank you. All right, so that's uh, enough about the kind of pathophysiology. Although this last thing I want to talk about is related to it. Um, kind of there's. As, as a bystander, kind of, I've read a few articles, uh, you know, recently uh, that there's been a lot of pushback against the kind of more biological understanding of depression and that uh, some psychiatry or some parts of psychiatry feel like the psychosocial has kind of been left behind. So there's a great, um, there's a great Nedjam article that's brief written by um, Dr. Caleb Gardner. Um, called Medicine in the Mind, The Consequences of Psychiatry's Identity Crisis. I'm just going to read a few quotes from this article and, and get your thoughts on it. So this is a quote. Today, one is hard-pressed to find anyone knowledgeable who believes that the so-called biological revolution of the 1980s made good on most or even any of its therapeutic and scientific promises. As is another quote. Yet over the past half century, biologic research has come to largely replace all other forms of psych psychiatric research, psychosocial, cultural, public health and community, which have thus been marginalized in spite of the useful knowledge these fields provide for everyday care of patients and prevention of mental illness. Similarly, psychotherapy, an essential and multifaceted tool that mobilizes the unique power of the clinician-patient relationship has been increasingly neglected in the psychiatric training and practice. And then this is another quote. It seems clear that psychiatry needs to be rebuilt and academics can lead the way biology and dynamic psychological considerations can complement one another. If advances in modern neuroscience have taught us anything, it's that the brain, mind and its emotional and cognitive processes are even more complicated and mysterious than previously thought. I thought, I thought it was a really beautifully written mm. article that, that summarises a, a lot of the the issues that the psychiatry and other parts of modern medicine, to be frank, are facing. Mm. Mm. Um, kind of what, what are your thoughts and, and or what are the thoughts of, of other psychiatrists you've, you've talked to? And, and do you feel like the pendulum is, is swimming, swinging more kind of towards the psychosocial side of, of understanding and treating this uh, terrible disease? Mm. Yeah. I really like this article. I think mm. you're right in that it's, 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 it's brief. It's, well-written it's it's clear um it's and it's it's clearly written from a place of um uh really care uh, caring about this stuff mm -hmm. and um and i i think it i'm not sure what your experience was reading the, reading it but my, my experience reading it was that it's um it's actually kind of a pretty mainstream position um or at least in psychiatrists in my experience um psychiatrists who think about this and care about this space fully uh, uh, if, if anyone says that it's all biological it's all psychological they get kind of shunned yeah of course <laughs> yes yeah. so, yeah. um the it's it's clearly wildly and very very interconnected um yeah the and and it's interesting in this article we kind of the the author 
points directly to this right at the start saying, um, although these limitations are widely recognized by experts in the field, and it says the prevailing message to the public and the rest of medicine remains a solution to psychological problems involve matching the right diagnosis with the right medication. Mm. Which I think it's, it's, it's true. There is a, there's, there's a difficulty with, um, I guess, partly kind of destigmatizing mental illness and getting greater public uh, acceptance of, of, of mental illness. So a lot of that has been done by equating psychiatric illness with medical illness, saying that depression, you know, depression is just like a broken leg, you know, and, and saying that they're the same thing. You shouldn't think of mental illness differently from psychiatric illness. Mm. And I think that's, that's useful for destigmatizing and it's useful for getting people thinking about mental illness. But I think it, um, it, it, it does lead to this place of if it's, if it's, if it's the same as medical illness, then the treatments should be the same as medical illness, like biological psychiatry, which mm -hmm. is kind of what this, this article is touching on. Oh, yeah. talking, not even touching on kind of directly attacking. Mm -mm. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel attacked. Um, no, it's 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 a good article. It's um, and I think there is a in like this. Oh, this is wildly, wildly in the weeds now. But um, but mm. I guess we're coming to the end. And yeah, yeah, we had a couple of opportunities for people to get tangled in the weeds before. So this yeah, is yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um. But yeah, there is this talk about the pendulum swinging back and forth between psychological and biological kind of throughout uh, throughout psychiatry's kind of relatively brief history. Mm -hmm. It's it's always it's like you know the the eighteen hundreds of like very biological where um, the, the thinking was that mental illness was all inflammatory and there was some really horrific things where some uh, early psychiatrists tried to cut out all the diseased organs and so they were like, oh my God, yeah, yeah. Hollow, hollowed out people who still had schizophrenia. Oh, um, yeah. Um, and then that kind of then Papa Freud came along and talked about the, the psyche. Mm -hmm. and, and then there was the um, and then ECT kind of moved into biological and then, and then, so there's this talk about the pendulum swinging back and forth, but I, I think it's probably a bit of a myth as well in that, there's a reasonable middle ground that's probably existed throughout much of the time. And my, my, my sense is people on the ground are probably more in that reasonable middle ground. Yeah. Okay. The difficulty is I think when it's communicated outside of that space and, and I know I keep coming into this, this talking kind of like anti-lawyer stuff, but you know, when you, when you're needing to really formalize, when you're asked to make kind of, clear pronouncements on something that it's much more ambiguous um, mm, 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 that can kind of lead to a space where and and kind of insurance companies and and you know needing a diagnosis to get a medication or to get a treatment it can mm, mm. make it seem like the field as a whole is in a place where I, it's not my experience that it yeah, is. yeah that's right that's really interesting and that's that's reassuring mm. to hear as well i suppose mm. uh, yeah because that's certainly as an outsider's view of psychiatry that is sometimes Mm. Uh, how it looks from the outside, mm. outside but i'm glad on on the inside it's it's much more nuanced than that mm. yeah 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 I, I would go so far to say that you know a lot of the themes that he was talking about this should really be applying to things outside of psychiatry mm. as well um, yeah i think uh you know 
for example, stroke, which is something that I'm really interested in and do a lot of, you know, if you boil that down to just, uh, you know, we need to um, fix this person's uh, blood vessel right now, but ignoring kind of, you know, a lot of the psychosocial stuff that has got that person to that point, you know, mm. where they need the yeah. clot retrieval or whatever else, uh, you know, you you just peak at the iceberg, I guess. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I mean, uh, much of general medicine is managing kind of chronic illness of, um, where lifestyle factors are absolutely a really central part of how that illness has, has developed. And mm-hmm. I know from, I mean, just to take an example of, um, kind of difficult to treat diabetes. Um, when I talk to endocrinologists who kind of talk about what makes diabetes difficult to treat, it's a lot of the time the actual diabetes kind of, process itself is is a, a minority of what the what the difficulty is it's, it's absolutely um, yeah yeah it's um you know, trying to get people to get patients to take their medications or try to get people kind of involved in their care and that's that's complicated mm-hmm. okay all right so i think that's probably a reasonable spot to uh to stop uh, just kind of we like to end with kind of the most important take-home messages and if if you're listening to this podcast to you know pass exams which is an exceptionally low yield way to learn that stuff <laughs> but thank you <laughs> probably prob- probably the most important thing you need to to pull out of it is that depression syndrome those nine uh features we look for in a diagnosis of depression and remind me your mnemonic one more time most uh, yes yeah yeah <laughs> Cool. That's good. And then uh, we spent a lot of time just kind of waffling after that. Uh, we, <laughs> uh, you know, we talked about the, the burden of depression and how, you know, it's really hard to, to know what it truly is. And it's very hard to compare it across different times or, or cultural contexts. Uh, some of the risk factors, so uh, more common in low income, more common in the young and the old uh more income, uh, more common in, in widowed and divorced people. And then we spend a lot of time talking about kind of the, the grand unified theory of depression, the psychosocial biological model, and how all those different factors, you know, may, may connect to each other and the different opportunities they give us for treatment as well, which is something we'll hopefully cover on a, on a future podcast. So that's, that's part one of, of the series on depression. Thank you so much, Dean. You've been so generous with your time. And, and that was absolutely fascinating for me, if, if not for anyone else. And uh, looking, <laughs> no, looking, me. Had a blast. looking forward to talking about uh, how you evaluate with, with kind of some more specific clinical examples and how you, how you treat this, this awful disease.